Let's pray together. Father, we come as the sheep of your pasture in need of the unction grace that we have just rehearsed. Lord, we want your cross to be before us to guide us, and we want to be those who will indeed sing your praise within your house forever. So, Father, we pray that you would work through this word and make it so. We pray that you would make us those who accept our place in your world, who calm and quiet our souls, who exercise self-control because we know you and who hope forever. And Lord, we pray that you would make us the people who will admire the one who wears the crown forever. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Psalm 131, and we will look together at at Psalms 131 and 132 today. As you turn to Psalm 131, I want to try to impress upon you how much you need to hear what this psalm says, because what this psalm gives to us is the secret of life. And it not only gives us the secret of life, it gives us the the recipe for baking it into our lives, if you will. It gives us the, the action plan for having this secret for ourselves. So as we think about the secret of life, and as we think about Psalm 131, I need to first read to you Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, because I think that David has this passage in mind. So you can maybe jot down Deuteronomy 29, 29. Maybe you have Deuteronomy 29, 29 memorized. If you don't, I would commend that you commit this this verse to memory. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And it's not just this text, I think, that that is prompting David to to write what he says in Psalm 131. I think David has the context of uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 in view. Right before this, Moses has told Israel, they're they're on the plains of Moab, they are about to enter into the land of promise, And Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, that the Lord hasn't given them the heart they need to keep the Torah. He's given them this great law, and he's emphasized to them, this law is so good. If you will do this law, you will be blessed beyond your imagination. You will experience God's presence. Your land will be blessed. Your wives will be blessed. Everything will be blessed. And then he says to them, but down to this very day, the Lord your God has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then in the rest of the chapter, Moses sets about explaining to them that since they don't have the heart they need, they're not going to keep the Torah. They're not going to keep the covenant. And as a result, they're going to be driven into exile. And I think that what's happening is Moses is driving his audience to realize we're in deep trouble. And what kind of a setup is this? 
I think Moses is saying to them, why would you do this? Or Moses wants them to say to him, why would the Lord do this? Why would the Lord give us this great law, make all these great promises, and then say to us, but you can't do it. And because you, go, you can't do it, you're going to come under the wrath of God. And I think that's the context for Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things. God's purposes for doing it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But then he goes on to say, but the things that are revealed, all the law, all the good instructions, the things that are revealed, and the fact that if you don't keep it, you're going to come under God's wrath. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, look at the revelation and obey. I think David is contemplating this, and I think this is why he says in Psalm 131, three short verses, the secret of life. Verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There are three things here that David does not do. First, he says, my heart is not lifted up. And, and the heart is where you think about things in the Bible. So what David is saying is, I am not setting something like, I am not setting my thoughts on things that are above me. I'm not, I'm not thinking about things that belong to you. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And I think what he's communicating here is, I am not setting my ambitions on, on prying into the secret things or on gaining access to the secret things. So I think there's a, there's a heart level where this is what he's thinking about and then there's an uh, setting the eyes. I think this is about what you're putting your ambitions on, what you're going after. And then when he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, I think what he's saying is, I don't uh, put myself in position to be concerned with all the time, to be dealing with all the time, this stuff that doesn't belong to me. So it's very important to see what David is doing here. David, in Psalm 131, verse 1, is contenting himself with his God-assigned place. David is saying, in essence, you're God, I'm not. I'm a creature. You made me. You imposed these limitations upon me. And then what he's doing is he's embracing and accepting and living within those God-ordained limitations. It's as though David is saying, there are things that are beyond my control and they're going to stay there. there. There are things that are beyond my knowledge and they're going to stay there. There are things that are none of my business. So I'm going to leave it alone. It's none of my business. It's not my fight. It's not my job. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. So that's, that's what he doesn't do. Now what he does in verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. And then he tells us about how he's done that. But what we, we need to see exactly what he says here. Um, so literally, 
what, what we have in verse 2 is an oath formula. And literally what David says, if, if we were to just translate the Hebrew words that are here instead of interpreting them, literally what he says is, if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. And there's an implication that is unstated, but that everybody in his culture would have understood. It, 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 the statement, if I have not, it implies a phrase like, may the curses of the covenant fall upon me. Or like in the scene with, with uh, Abraham and the Lord when he chops the animal in half and then the smoking fire pot goes through the pieces, may what has been done to this animal be done to me if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. When you put it that way, it, it, it implies some things, doesn't it? It implies that it would be sinful for David to be agitated about things that are too high and too lofty for him. It implies that he would be transgressing the bounds of the covenant if he were to concern himself with what doesn't belong to him, what he has no business concerning himself with. So David is saying that it is righteous for me to calm myself down, to quiet my soul, and to live within my limits. Later in this service, Lord willing, we are going to recite the Nicene Creed. And we are going to say the words, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And He's the only one. One God, the Father Almighty. He's the only God. You're not God. You're not God, so you don't have to worry about the problems of history. You're not God, so you don't have to worry yourself, concern yourself with the problems of society. You're not God, so you don't have to sort out why your personal history has been the way it is. You're not God, so you don't have to fix everybody in your life. We, we have to... We need to not do what David says he doesn't do, and we need to do what David says he does. That's the recipe for the secret of life. So, so many of the, the, the turmoils, the anguishes, the, the frustrations that we experience, they're going on in our souls because we're trying to control things that we have no business trying to control. We're trying to fix problems that aren't our problems. We're trying to answer questions that we have no business addressing. So I, I said the secret of life. One of the secrets of life is for you to figure out the creator-creature distinction. There is one God, the Father Almighty, who's the creator, and you are one of his cre creatures. And your business is to accept the limitations of being a human being in God's world under God's reign, and then to calm and quiet your soul. So every time, every time the, the why questions start coming, why is my life the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? Why are things not the way I want them to be? You, you, need to, you need to think Psalm 131. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I have calmed and quieted my soul. How, though? How are we going to do this? So if this, is, if this is one of the secrets of life, to be able to content yourself as a creature under the Creator, to be able to content yourself with, with the human limitations impo imposed upon you, how do you keep uh, the vow? Because in verse 2, David is making a vow when he says, 
if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. May it be done to me, and more also, if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. In his next words, he tells us how, how he's done this. And in his next words, he tells you how you can do this. Look at what he says there in verse 2. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I think what he's saying is, God is our father and we are his children. So in order to calm and quiet your soul, so that it's, it's ironic here because there's, a, there's one of these things where there's stuff that we have to do, but there's stuff that God has to do. Well, God's done his part. We need to do our part. And our part is to experience God as our father. Like a weaned child with its mother. Ephesians 3 says, this is why we say the words, we believe in one God, the father. Ephesians 3 says, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I think what he's saying is something like this. The reason creation is structured so that they are, there are males and there are females, there are fathers and there are mothers, is because this is, this, is de, this is reflecting something that's inherent within the character of God. He's bowing his knees before the Father from whom every family derives its name. Families derive from God's idea, and they're showing us who he is. God is a father. God is what is imaged by fathers. And this text remarkably speaks of a weaned child with its mother. So I would suggest to you that all the beauty that you see when you see a child in its mother's arms, that beauty is reflecting something about God. That God loves his people that way. And then he says, like a weaned child, why does he say weaned child? Uh, Matt and I were, were talking about this, and I gave Matt my answer to that question. And Matt goes, that's what I read in the Gospel Application Study Bible. And I said, huh. And I, I can't remember which one of us said it. Somebody said, who wrote the notes? And we go, look, we go get Gabe's copy of the Gospel Application Study Bible, and we look at Psalms 101 to 150, and it's Bruce Ware. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is what he said, something along these lines. He said, um, a child that's nursing might want to be with its mother for food. And, and you've seen, I'm sure, frantic children that are hungry and they're eager to eat. But a weaned child just wants to be with mother because she's mom. Like a weaned child with its mother. And then he says, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I think what he's saying is, I am in my father's arms. Secret of life. Recognize that you're a creature. God is the creator. Recipe for baking it into your life. Experience God as your father. Go to him as your father. J.I. Packer, I can't quote the exact words, but J.I. Packer basically said, becoming somebody that prays is becoming somebody that knows that God is your heavenly father. And that's exactly the way that Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Our father who art in heaven. David is recognizing, accepting, embracing the limitations that God has imposed upon him as a human being. And what enables him to do this are these similes here. 
The fact that he knows that he's in his father's arms. So, you know, all over the Psalter, there are these, these how long questions. How long, O Lord? And, and I think there's an appropriate way to ask how long, and then there's an inappropriate way to ask how long. There's a, there's a way to say how long, and what you're communicating is, Lord, I want you to reign. We need you to come. But there's a, a way to ask how long that says, where are you? And you are in the wrong. And I am rejecting your purposes. And, and when you get into that mode, you're sinning, and you need to repent. And, and you need to embrace the fact that, that God is your Father, that He's the Creator, and you need to lower your eyes. And you need to redirect your heart to accepting your identity as one of His people's. Uh, verse 3, here in Psalm 131, is connecting this psalm to the, the, the broader context that, that we have here in the Psalms of Ascent. So look at the first words of verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Look back at Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. When David repeats the words of Psalm 130, verse 7, in Psalm 130, verse 3, he is tying the message of Psalm 131 to the broader context of these psalms. And in the broader context of these psalms, we have these hopes for a, a new work of, God, of God's salvation that's going to be like the exodus from Egypt, but bigger, and it's going to bring God's people home from exile and establish God's king over God's place so that God's people can enjoy God's righteousness. That, that's all I... I've been arguing all through the, these Psalms of Ascent and through the whole book of Psalms. I've argued that's all here. And I think that that repetition of Psalm 130 verse 7 at the beginning of 130 verse 3 ties us in to these broader hopes. So part of, part of not concerning yourself with things too marvelous for you is saying the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, what God has said he's going to do. And what God, the way that God is going to bring those things about, I'm going to concern myself with that. O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then look at the last words of verse 3. From this time forth and forevermore. And if you're in the practice of reading and rereading the Psalms, it's, it's like you hear resonances with, with where this statement is repeated elsewhere. Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And then we have it here in 131, verse 3. And, and it was earlier. It's back in 113, verse 2 and some other places as well. O Israel, hope in the Lord from now and forever. So three points of application. There's more. There's more application that I have not articulated. Maybe that I have articulated, but I'm not going to restate. But here are three, three statements. Number one, accept your place in God's world. Accept your place in God's world. You know, one of the great things about, about being an employee is that the employer has the job of being the person that's got to worry about whether or not the business is going to survive. I mean, a good employee is maybe going to do what he can to help, but it's, it's his business, right? And, and it's like that with us and the Lord. We are people under orders. We are people under orders. He gives the orders. 
He sets the battle strategy. He, concern, he made these other people. He has orchestrated these people's lives. They're his business. Accept your place in God's world. And, and related to that, um, accept your place in God's world. Obey what God has commanded. This is sort of a sub-point here. Uh, and I want to tell you about two conversations that I, that, I, that I thought of as I was reflecting on this. One was with a, a pastor uh, who was being an older pastor who was being asked by a younger pastor um, about, about things like uh, church renewal, church revitalization, um, how, you know, how to go about uh, pursuing healthy culture in, in a church. And, and there are lots of right answers to a question like that. But what this, what this guy said was, evangelism is always the answer. You concern yourself with making disciples. You concern yourself with communicating the gospel. And, and so, you, in other words, you do what you've been commanded to do. And you can stop worrying about a lot of stuff that's that none of your business and that is probably going to take care of itself apart from what you do. The other conversation had to do with, with fighting, fighting temptation and, and overcoming sin. And, and in this, on this occasion, I was asking an older man, I said, I said what has most help, helped you in fighting temptation and overcoming sin in your life? And he said, this answer might surprise you, surprise you, but uh, sharing the gospel has helped me to fight sin and overcome temptation in my life. When we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, when we're doing what the Lord commanded us to do, we're not going to be doing a bunch of stuff we're not supposed to be doing. Accept your place in God's world. Number two, and here I'm just coming out of verse two. I mean, the first point of application, if you will, came out of verse one. Verse two, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Exercise self-control. Notice self-control over your emotions, over what you're feeling inside. And then by knowing God. How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to calm and quiet my soul? Crawl up into your, your father's arms like a weaned child with his mother. Number three, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's easy, isn't it? Hope forever. Hope forever. We, if we are people who believe the Bible, we are people who never give up. Psalm 132 is connected to Psalm 131. Random aside, I don't know how something like this happens in my printer. <laughs> Actually, I do. Kids live in my house. That's a, I'm just thankful that the other side, the side that came through the printer was the, the blank side. <laughs> Psalm 132. Um, there, there are strong... There, the, the, the points of contact between Psalm 131 and 132, look at, look at verse 3 where David says, I will not enter my house. And then verse 4 where he says, I will not give sleep to my eyes. In these statements, he's, what he's saying is just like what we saw in 131 verse, verse 2, where he says, if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. In these statements in verses 3 and 4, what he's saying is, if I enter my house, if I give sleep to my eyes. In other words, it's that oath formula again. May it be done to me and more, so, more also, if I enter my house and, and give sleep to my eyes. And then the Lord does it. Down in verse, uh, verse uh, 11, 
uh, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will say, if one of the sons of your body does not sit on the throne. The Lord is invoked. So these, these uh, oath formulas are tying these two Psalms together. And, and then there's this thematic connection between Psalm 131 and 132, because 131, David is saying, my eyes are not lifted too high. I'm calming and quieting my soul. And then in 132, he's saying, I'm not giving rest to myself. I'm, if I go to bed before I see about the Lord's temple. So let's, let's walk through uh, Psalm 132 together. The psalmist prays. So this is, this is not David praying. This is some other person saying in Psalm 132, verse 1, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. And from the content of the psalm, we're going to see that these hardships have to be sacrifices that David made because of his devotion to the Lord and things that David suffered because he was being faithful to the Lord. So, so verses 2 through 5, the psalmist is going to, he's going to tell us about this oath that David made. Look at the end of verse 2 where it says he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. You get that same phrase at the end of verse 5, for the mighty one of Jacob. And, and that phrase is working like a bracket around verses 2 through 5. It's telling you verses 2 through 5 are a unit. Okay, so we got verse 1, remember David, Lord. And then verses 2 through 5, uh, this is what David did, bracketed by mighty one of Jacob. Verse 2, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed, literally again, if I enter my house and go to my bed. Verse 4, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Again, if I give sleep to my, may it be done to me and more also, if I give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What David is saying is, I'm going to give myself no rest until I get the temple built. Now, why would he say this? He says this because he knows the Bible. Look, look with me back at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Back in Deuteronomy 12, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You can write it down if you want. Um, all through this chapter, Moses is, is telling Israel things like what he says in verse 5. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. That word's going to be significant in Psalm 132. You, will, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name there and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings. So Moses commands Israel, you need to establish a place for the name of the Lord when you get into the land. Again, plains of Moab, they're about to enter the promised land. Moses is telling them, when you get into the promised land, you need to establish a place. David comes along, and they still don't have a place. They don't have a temple. And David says, I'm not resting until we obey the Bible. I'm the king. I'm responsible for this. We're going to get it done. David swore that he would give himself no rest. He wanted to obey the law of Moses. And he did not want his own comfort and self-indulgence, even in the physical need of sleep, to distract him from what he knew he was called to do. I'm going to go ahead and give you application out of verses 2 through 5. 
David wants to get the temple built because he knows that man's greatest need is to worship God. Your greatest need is to worship God. So David knows we got to get the temple built because our greatest need is to worship. So what does he do? we got to obey the Bible. That's what he does. He says we must obey the Scriptures. Your greatest need is to worship the Lord. So your top priority should be obeying the Word. In the Old Covenant context, that meant for David... We need, to get this, we need to locate this place where the temple is going to be established, and then we need to get it built. And then the, you know, the prophet comes to him and says, you can't do it. And he says, okay, I'll stockpile all the stuff that Solomon is going to need to get it done. How do we translate that into a new covenant context? Well, Jesus is building a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's commanded us to go and make disciples. You know, you may have experiences where you realize, okay, building the, doing the actual work of the construction is not my job, but I'm going to contribute my part to the job. So, so we need to be about what Jesus has commanded us because our greatest need is to worship the Lord. And he inhabits the praises of his people. He's present where two or three gather in his name. And, and our greatest need is to worship. So, so we... We obey Christ in the Great Commission so that we can worship the Lord together. So we have this oath that David makes. And then in verses 6 through 8, it's interesting, we have this group of people that hear about what's going on. Look at how they respond in verses 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, a place in ancient Israel. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. This may refer to the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was held. It was held in um, Kiriath-Jerim, and that word Jerim, if you take it, if, if you put it in a different, if you put it in the singular instead of the plural, it's Ja'ar. So they may be referring to the finding of the Ark and then the, the moving of the Ark into Jerusalem because verse 7 says, let us go to his dwelling place, where the temple's going to be, let us worship at his footstool. That's the Ark. So the people... The people want to go where God is going to be present to worship Him there. And then the people call on the Lord. Look at what they say in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So they want to gather where God's going to be present, and they call on the Lord to come among them. Really what they're doing is obeying Psalm 105, verse verse 4. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence or His face continually or always. Seek His face always. So David wants to obey the Bible, get the temple built. The people want to go there. They want God to be there. And then uh, look at at verses 9 and 10. They're going to, in the flow of thought in the psalm, they're going to continue to talk to the Lord. But look at verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David, verse 10. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then look down at verses 16 and 17. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. Same people doing the same things, right? Priests clothing, saints shouting for joy. And then verse 17, I will make a horn to sprout for David, 
I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, right? So in verse 9, we got priests and saints being clothed and shouting for joy. Same thing in verse 16. Verse 10, we got David and the anointed one or the Messiah. Same thing in verse 17. Same four people in the same order with the same kind of stuff happening in those verses 9 and 10 and verses 16 and 17. So I think, again, those are bookends. I think verses 9 and 10 and verses 16 and 17 are bookending the material in between. Okay, so verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. What is it that David wants to build? Oh, yeah, the temple. What's going to happen at the temple? They're going to offer sacrifices for the cleansing from their sin. And when they do these things, they'll be enacting righteousness, right? So this is all connected. Let your priests be... That's Old Covenant context. How do we translate that into a New Covenant context? Well, the great high priest Jesus has made the, the final sacrifice and God made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is a, a surpassing righteousness available to those who trust in Christ. Let your priests be clothed with, with righteousness here. Uh, he made us to be a kingdom and priests you, you people sitting here are priests of the Most High God clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know that it is your job to mediate the knowledge of the living God to the rest of the world? This psalmist prayer has been answered. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. That's what we do when we sing together. I love the music here at Kenwood. I love being here at Kenwood to worship. Celebrating God's goodness, God's salvation. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David. This is really interesting. Remember verse 1? Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. And then look at verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Do you hear what's happening? The, the face of the future king. The psalmist is saying, Lord, don't turn away the face of your anointed one because of David. Do you hear what's happening? David's faithfulness on behalf of the Lord. David's sufferings and afflictions, they matter. They matter for Jesus, for the Messiah. The psalmist is making an appeal for Jesus on the basis of how David lived. And David wasn't perfect. David was a sinner like us. This suggests that your faithfulness matters. God remembers our efforts on his behalf. And, and you know, in the, in the flow of thought in the Psalms, we've already seen the king from David's line dethroned in Psalm 89. So this psalmist, the placement of this psalm suggests we're not looking for the historical line of descent anymore. We're looking for that future restoration of the Davidic throne. I mean, this is a, this is a messianic passage if ever there is one in the Old Testament. Thoroughly messianic. For the sake of your servant David, verse 10, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. God, why is he doing this? Well, because God made oaths to David. God saw David's faithfulness and he rewarded it and he said, your sons are going to endure before me. Here comes the oath, verse 11. 
Okay, so verses 9 and 10 and verses 16 and 17 are going to bracket the material in verses 11 through 15. And in verses 11 and 12, we're going to get the promise about David. And then in verses 13 through 15, we're going to get the Lord's choice of Zion as the place where he would set his name. So verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. Literally, what it says is, the Lord swore to David truth. Are the pains here? Emmet is what it says. The pains have a little boy named Emmet. That's the Hebrew word truth. There they are. The Lord swore to David truth because this is who he is. He tells the truth. This is what he does. He speaks the truth and he doesn't change his character and he doesn't change his word. The Lord swore to David truth from which he will not turn back. Again, if here... May it be done to me, and more also, if one of the sons of your body does not sit on your throne, I do not set upon the throne that belongs to you. One of the sons of your body, the ESV reads, I will set on your throne. This means the Lord is certainly going to do it. Absolutely. And then verse 12, this I think applies to that line of descent that failed. Verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. That line of descent, it was cut off because they weren't faithful. The Lord is true to his word. He kept the covenant, right? And then Jesus came. Jesus came and he obeyed this in a way that the the other descendants of David never could. Verses 13 through 15, the Lord's choice of, of Zion. The psalmist writes, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. For his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And then he and then he talks about the blessings of the covenant. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Where's this going to be fulfilled? Well, you know what the the new heaven and new earth, you know what the capital city is, right? It's the new Jerusalem. That's the Zion where the king from David's line is going to reign forever. That's the Zion that is going to experience the fullness of the the blessings of the covenant that the Lord made. So just to review our points of application so far, from verse 1, where the psalmist is saying, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. I would say, you should embrace the idea that God remembers your faithfulness. You should pursue faithfulness so that there's stuff for God to remember. And then in verses 2 through 5, our greatest need is to worship the Lord, so our top priority should be obedience to the Lord's word. Verses 6 through 8, Psalm 105, verse 4, seek his face always. And now verses 9 through 17. Everything in verses 9 through 17 has been fulfilled in Jesus. Set your hope fully on him. Lastly, verse 18. His enemies... Oh, wait, I, I, I got I to talk about verse 17, sorry. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, verses 16 and 17. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord says, I almost skipped over those, sorry. The Lord says, her priests, Zion's priests, I will clothe with salvation. You, you notice how back in verse 9, it was let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Now in verse 16, her priests, I will clothe with salvation. There's another passage in the Old Testament that talks about the priest being clothed. I'm thinking of of Zechariah. In in chapter 3 of Zechariah, 
There's this vision that Zechariah has of the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord, and his robes are just filthy. And, and, and they say, uh, let them put bright, shining, cl- clean robes on him. And then Zechariah joins in the party, and, and he says, let him put a clean turban on his head. And they do it. He's clothed with, with clean, right, uh, symbol, symbolic righteousness. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. We are the priesthood that Jesus made through what he has accomplished, and we are clothed with salvation, which I think symbolically means, you know, if, if, the, if the priestly robes of Old Testament Israel symbolized what God had done for his people and what he was going to do for his people, we should be those that when people look at us, they, what they see is God's salvation. Symbolically, we are communicating to the world, there's mercy available to you. There's reconciliation available for you. There's a God who will be your father. There's a way for you to have a calm and quiet soul if you will make yourself like a weaned child in his arms. Her priest's son will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. And then verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. Uh, This also has connections with Zechariah because in Zechariah, you've got these horns that symbolize powers of of the world in chapter 1. And another connection with Zechariah is that um, at the end end of the first chapter, um, Zechariah is talking about how the Lord will again choose Jerusalem. And then that's repeated over in chapter 2. And and here, you know, there's this emphasis in the psalm about how the Lord has chosen uh, Zion. I will make a horn to sprout for David. This indicates that the horn has been cut off, doesn't it? So it's got to sprout. It sort of sounds like like Isaiah 11.1. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. The line was cut off when the people were exiled, when when the king was dethroned, when they were carried off into into captivity. And the Lord's saying, it's coming back. I'm going to make the horn sprout, the king sprout for David. And then he says, I've prepared a lamp. Zechariah 4, there's this menorah with these lamps. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Zechariah wrote Psalm 132. I don't know. Or maybe Psalm 132 influenced Zechariah. Maybe he was meditating on this psalm and he went to sleep and he woke up having these visions that resonate. So I don't know what the process was. But at any, any rate, I have prepared a lamp, light, hope, future, fed by oil. I've prepared a lamp for my Messiah. We're talking about the future king from David's line right here. Verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame. So the two ways are right there before you. Which which way do you want to go? You want to be clothed with righteousness and salvation or you want to be clothed with shame forever? The choice is yours. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, the Bible is telling you what awaits you. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, he said... He said, the one who is not for me is against me. You're against him. If you're not trusting him, if you're not bowing the knee to him and embracing him as the king of the world, you are his enemy because you are not for his kingdom. And the Bible is warning you that if you continue on that path, you are going to be clothed with shame. But you don't have to stay on that path. You can turn away from the way you're going. You can turn away from all the ways that you're rebelling against Jesus. You can recognize him as king. You can can bow before him as your Lord. 
And you'll become somebody that's clothed with his righteousness instead of being clothed with shame. Somebody that's clothed with salvation, the, mess, the good news, the message that salvation is available. So verse 18 again, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but the rest of the verse, but on him, that's the horn, the anointed from verse 17, on him, his crown will shine. And we are going to be those who are not clothed with shame. We're going to be the priests clothed with righteousness and salvation, admiring the one who's wearing the gleaming crown. So application of verses 9 through 17. Everything has been fulfilled in Jesus. Hope in him. Verse 18, application. Don't be somebody that's going to be clothed with shame. Choose the other way, the way of salvation. The Lord has answered the prayer that we saw in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. And he will do exactly what the psalmist petitions him to do. He will, he will remember David's affliction. He will remember David's commitment to the, to the name of the Lord in the temple. And the remembrance of these things will take the form of the Lord keeping the promises that he's made to David and raising up the ever-reigning seed who is right now building a house for the Lord's name and preparing. He went away to prepare a place for his people. He's preparing a Zion that will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to find our lives in what the Bible says. Lord, make us people who embrace everything taught here. Make us people who, who look at our lives and what we see is a place where Jesus is going to reign, a place where your promises are going to be kept. And Lord, help us to calm and quiet our souls. Keep us, Lord, from raising our eyes too high or setting our hearts on things that don't belong to us, occupying ourselves with things that are too wonderful for us. Lord, help us to, to live out the loveliness of humility and help us to be those who are like a weaned child in your arms. And with that, Father, we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.